0: Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 6 if you haven't already done so. And this morning we look at the treasure principle that's given to us by our Savior in Scripture. Matthew 6, beginning with verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. When I was in my early 20s, I discovered the joy of successful investing for a short time. And then I discovered the drip-at-a-time anxiety of watching it fly away. Many of you have been through that yourself. Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5 say, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Now this is not a command to not be responsible with money. In fact, throughout the Scripture, you see a number of commands that deal with money. Many of you know, based on our study this last week, that Jesus talks more in the Scripture about about money than he does heaven and hell combined. And that's surprising to us. I believe the reason it's surprising to us is that there is so little willingness among Christians to grapple together with the concept of money because we feel like, oh, that's a private issue. It's my money. But as you see repeatedly throughout the Scripture, it's actually not your money. Now, I suggest to you, and I'd suggest it very strongly, that at the point where you own that idea that it's not your money and you're a manager, you'll start to deal with it as the Lord would have you deal with it. But it's hard to understand this. I think especially for the person who's just been through a lot of schooling and spent a lot of money and now they're making a really good paycheck and they have this American mindset that, well, I got to this place, you know, I did the work, I completed the studies. I've earned the degree. I banked the job. And so I'm getting what I deserve. And if you spend just a little bit of time in the Scripture, you'll you'll see that you're actually not getting what you deserve. You're getting the blessing that God has provided. He's blessed you with the ability to work and therefore the ability to be remunerated for your work. If you got what you deserved, as you know and I know, You'd be snuffed out in a moment, be spending eternity suffering for your sin, but Christ, our Savior, has not only blessed us with forgiveness of sins and victory over that sin, He's blessed us with the ability to care for our families and to invest eternally in God's treasures. If you listen to the infomercial that often all but guarantees the absolute best investment return for your money, you're probably surprised when you get to the end of that infomercial and you hear this phrase, past performance is no guarantee of future results. You've heard that as many times as you've heard the investor tell you, I can give you a better deal for your money than what you're currently getting. And that they qualify it for legal purposes, but when I say legal purposes, I don't mean they have to. I mean they do it so that they won't get in trouble when they don't make any money with your money. And that does happen. That happened to me when I was a young man. I had a good friend. He decided to become an investor. So he took a handful of my money and turned it into $4,000. And I was amazed. I thought, oh, this is easy. You've been there, some of you. And then over the course of about 14 months, every month when I would, back then you wouldn't go online, right? This was some time ago. Every month when I would get that statement, I would think, what's happening here? It's like somebody's pulling money out of this. Uh, Well, it wasn't that. My friend wasn't stealing money from me. It was just that the company that he had invested in went way up and went further down. And eventually all that money became a penny, literally one penny. So I began to say, okay, I guess this isn't so easy. Well, that was, let me just tell you, that was a bad investment. There are good financial investments and there are bad financial investments. I learned from that one what not to invest in and how not to go about doing it. This is by no means this morning from me, much less from Christ in the text of Scripture, a call for you to not be investing in earthly treasure for your future entirely. The point is, it's not going to last As you save money, you save money for uh, your children, you save money for a car, and I encourage you to do things like that, to budget, to not uh, borrow money. But as you do that, what you're doing is you're being responsible with the resources that God has uh, given to you for a time, and in doing so, you're being a better steward with all of the money God has entrusted to you for a time so that you can best invest eternally. So don't think that what we're being told here is to not be responsible with your money because it's fleeting and it will fly away. The point is don't dwell on it. Don't obsess over it. Be careful that as you do invest in things that are temporal that you're doing so with a much greater long-term goal of that which is eternal. Keep that perspective, then you'll do well. Years ago, I counseled a young couple... And they're having difficulties, and uh, you don't know this couple, by the way. I spent a little time with them, and I said, listen, I'd like to continue to counsel you for a while, uh, but these are my expectations. And one of the expectations, if you've been through counseling with me, you know exactly what these are. One of the expectations was that there be a willingness to give up anything and everything for Christ. Not necessarily to give up anything and everything, but to be willing to do so. And what we're talking about really there is a willingness to cut out the idolatry from your life. Is there anything in your life that you would not give up? And I even, in marital counseling, would go so far as to say that if it were Christ's decree that you were to need to give up your spouse, would you be willing to do that? Now that sounds like an odd thing to say in marital counseling. But it puts it in proper perspective. Your marriage is not eternal. Your devotion to Christ is eternal there is no marriage in heaven paul tells us the purpose of marriage is to display christ's marriage with the church that by no means diminishes the significance and the importance and the value and the joy of marriage in fact quite the opposite it's the very reason that marriage is so valuable because it is emblematic of eternal marriage between christ and his church those who model their marriage after Christ's relationship with the church have a beautiful marriage, whether that's one spouse or both. And I explained that to them, and I asked this man, so do you think you can do this? Are you willing to have that mindset? And he stopped, and he looked at the floor, and he looked back up at me, and he said, you know, I just got direct TV. That's what he said. I said, okay. And he said, and I love the Raiders. I'm thinking, this is a joke, right? I mean, I really did think that. I thought he's playing me. He said, I I love the Raiders. I just don't think I could do without the Raiders. Now, listen, I'm a former Raiders fan. So I'm thinking, of all teams, the Raiders, really? Really? but really a football team i mean a football game do you even know any of those guys one comedian made a big deal over this several years ago by saying really what you're cheering for is the uniform and it ultimately comes down to laundry you don't know any of those people i love it when i see that team i played for in college is doing well but i don't know any of those guys certainly don't know anybody who plays in the nfl So I was stunned, and I I said to him, are the Raiders more important than your marriage? And, And the fact is, they were. But this is not unusual. It's not unusual at all in our culture. Some of you may be experiencing that reality this very day. Either something is more important than your spouse, or something is more important to your spouse. So you know the difficulty that this couple was experiencing when they sat in front of me, and I said to him, if you can't give them up for your spouse, can you give them up for your soul? That conversation didn't go well. They left. I didn't counsel them any further. They didn't come back. But to say that past performance is no guarantee of future results is not true in the case with eternal treasure. (laughs) It's certainly the case with the Raiders much less your financial investments in this lifetime. Now, when pastors talk about money, they have to be careful because there's always the potential for those in the congregation to think that the pastor is trying to do more to get more. Most of you know we haven't talked about money for four and a half years and we've only talked about it twice on a Sunday morning. And that's not because that's the biblical pattern, meaning that somehow somewhere in the scripture there's this thing that says, you know, you can only talk about money every half a decade. It's just that we have felt like other things took priority all along the way. We've typically kept, although it's not in there today, in your bulletin, 2 Corinthians 9, which tells you to give as you determine in your heart so that you wouldn't be tempted to be legalistic about your giving and to give by guilt. But as we talk about money this morning, as we talk about it in our discipleship classes, as we talk about it a few more Sundays, I'm just here to tell you like we deal with any other passage of Scripture, I'm going to tell you what God has said and trust that God's going to use your faithfulness in being faithful, eager listeners of God's Word that He would be glorified and that our church would be most effective in this community and throughout the world. That's the idea. I don't want a raise. I was not uh, willing to receive a raise this year had it been offered to me. I I wouldn't have taken it. You take very good care of us. We're not looking for that. We trust the Lord that whatever he motivates you to give will be that which he uses to use us most faithfully. In this text, Jesus reveals three truths about you so that you will live an anxiety-free life seeking his kingdom and his righteousness I mean, even if you didn't come here this morning thinking, I really want to get my finances together, but I've got issues with anxiety, then the Lord has a message for you. I believe the Lord has a message for our whole church, not in some mystical way, but in that this passage has always been in the Bible. And the Lord speaks specifically here of what it is to store up your treasure in heaven rather than being anxiety fraught with temporal treasures that have taken God's place in your life. Point number one, your possessions reveal your heart. Verse 19, as you know, says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also The person that comes to mind when I read this passage is Mary, in contrast to Martha. Martha, who was obsessed with keeping the kitchen clean, Mary, who was obsessed with Christ. And the Lord says to Martha about her when Martha has complained, Lord, do something. He says to her, Mary's portion cannot be taken from her. The term portion there is a term related to food. It's really... Uh, fundamentally talking about food, although that's not how Jesus was using it. He was using that illustratively so that her sister would understand that her sustenance, right? We get food for sustenance. And the Lord was saying her sustenance is me. And it can't be taken away. Her joy can't be taken away. Her anxiety-free living can't be taken away because she sits at the feet of the rabbi Jim Elliott said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This is the proper perspective. This is the man who gave everything. This is the man who gave his life with other missionaries to minister to a people group who had not been reached, and they killed him. And two years later, his wife, who knew his life and lived the same kind of life, Elizabeth Elliott, went back to those same people and won them to Christ. This is the magnificent story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. By the way, they were reunited in heaven as of about a year ago when Elizabeth Elliot went to be with the Lord. What a joy. What a joy for a woman to have observed her husband's faithfulness, giving all storing up his treasure in heaven, not storing up his treasure on earth. That she too would be so moved by that kind of life that she herself would live that way. You know, when you think about your possessions, you have a litmus test in your garage. In your home. That's where your Treasure is. It's not to say that you're not storing up treasure in heaven. Don't confuse this. But the point is that if the treasures that you have in your home, in your garage, in your backyard, in your storage units, if those things are of such great importance to you that you can't liquidate them so as to store up your treasure in heaven, if you're sensing that that's what God might have you do, then your treasure is misplaced. That's the idea. It's not bad to have possessions. But many times you'll say, you know, we really need to get rid of this, but we want it to have what? We want it to have a good home. What do people really mean when they're saying that? What they mean when they're saying that is that it has value, and we want it to be useful to someone. It's a good perspective to say, you know, we, we have this... Wonderful item that's been helpful to us in our family, but we're, we've used it to the degree that we needed to, but we want it to go to someone who will actually put it to use. We've been the blessed recipients of a number of those things. We've been blessed to pass a number of th- those things on to other families. Kimberly and I are learning more and more and more the fleeting value of earthly possessions. When we get to the place where we realize this thing's taken up room, for many of you, it's the treadmill. It's become a coat hanger. You know, you use that thing to keep the shirts on that won't fit in your closet anymore. Um, that's happened to a lot of folks I, I know. And then you, you know, you sell that in our annual garage sale and you help someone go to Regen, And the next year, um, somebody else in our church sells it to somebody else, right? It's often how that goes. But there's great joy in recognizing the temporal value of the valuable items that you own. And at the point where you become convinced, not because you're hearing it from me, but because you're sensitive to the Lord, you begin to liquidate those things, thinking, I can, I can get, according to Christ, 100-fold return for what I'm pouring into heaven which by the way is 1,000% return. You're not getting that on your money market fund. The first time I experienced something like this, I was certainly an unbeliever, but it was an interesting thing as a kid. I think I was seven, six or seven, and I'd had this uh, Red Flyer tricycle that I rode and rode and rode, and as I remember, it was still in pretty good condition. and. Um, My mom had some friends over, my parents had some friends over, and they were mentioning how much they liked the tricycle and the fact that their little boy didn't have a tricycle. I mean, I was a kid, and I'm not trying to tell you I was this magnanimous child who loved giving things away. I'm just saying there was a lot of joy for me in recognizing, well, I'm not really using it. I I have a bicycle now. I still like it. I'd probably still like to keep it, but he needs one. I don't need it anymore. And of course, I never saw that tricycle again. But there was some sort of joy for me in passing that on to someone, knowing that it would have a good home. How much greater for you and me in the spiritual realm when we recognize many times that what we're doing is providing something for someone who is a faithful Christian family who can't afford what they need, and you have it sitting in your garage. What great joy. You've experienced that. I'm certain you have. But see, when you're all caught up in your possessions, you're driven by ensuring that your possessions are maintained. When you're imprisoned by your possessions, you'll be fraught with anxiety such that you'll probably treat others poorly in an effort to protect your relationship with your possessions. Your relationship with your possessions becomes more important than your relationships with your people because the possessions are more important than the people. At the point where you as a parent have become angry with one of your children because your children spilled whatever on whatever, and you came unglued. In that moment, that's not to say that the overarching reality of your life goes like this, but in that moment, that possession was more important to you than your child And if you're not willing to acknowledge that that can be true, that that duplicity can take place in your life and in your heart, that although Christ is much more important to you and your children are much more important to you than whatever that possession is, that in the moment you can actually shift gears and decide that this is, in this moment, more important than my child. If you haven't come to grips with that duplicitous reality about the human mind, now's an important time for that to happen. It doesn't make you faithless. It doesn't mean you're not a believer. It simply means that you're still a sinner as we all are. Christ exposes those things in us as we take the time to take an inventory of our possessions. Matthew 19, 16 says, And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life... Keep the commandments, he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, Oh, all these I've kept. In that very moment, Jesus makes a theological shift. Because he's recognizing that this person is not what? He's not honest. He's got a very skewed self-awareness. Maybe even having convinced himself that he actually has fulfilled the law of God. Unwilling to acknowledge that he has failed the law of God. What do I still lack? Because I've done all that. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, if you are perfect, if you have done what you say you have done, oh, then go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. So in response to the man's ridiculous statement, Jesus asked him to do the ridiculous, in the man's hyperbolic statement, which wasn't intended to be hyperbolic, it was intended to deceive, Jesus gave him a non-deceptive hyperbolic response. Sell everything. Is that required of you and me to sell everything, to liquidate all our possessions? No, what's required of us is to have that attitude. To be willing if it's necessary. And as you know, verse 22 may be one of the saddest verses in the Bible. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It's harder for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And by the way, that metaphor is what Jesus means. He wasn't talking about the east gate where a camel had to bend down and go through the gate, if you've heard that before. Jesus was talking about a real camel going through a real needle. That is impossible. Why do I know he's not talking about a camel going to the East Gate? Because a camel could go through the East Gate. Jesus is talking about the impossible. It is impossible for a rich man to go to heaven. You say, rich people won't be in heaven? No, Jesus does the impossible. The miraculous reality of the gospel is that when Jesus saves anybody, he has performed the impossible. But the impossibility of the rich man getting into the kingdom of heaven is much more obvious because he is more inclined to be dependent upon his many possessions. And this rich man was so inclined to be so dependent upon his possessions that he walked away sad. And so his heart is revealed in his perspective on his possessions. He was unwilling to part with them even for the sake of his soul. Luke 12, 13 says... "'Someone in the crowd said to him, "'Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me.' "'But he said to him, "'Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you?' "'And he said to them, "'Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, "'for one's life does not consist "'in the abundance of his possessions.' "'And he told them a parable, saying, "'The land of a rich man produced plentifully.' "'And he thought to himself, "'What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops?' And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You see, Jesus is calling you and me to be rich toward God. Our passage tells us that we are to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And the way we know this is not selfish is that you're not storing up for yourselves treasures on earth. That would be selfish. To store up treasures in heaven is to give it away. It's to give it to somebody who needs it. It's to invest in that which will certainly have a 1,000% return. Here's another passage. These passages all reveal the heart of the people, the objects of the passage. Here's another passage that reveals the heart of a group of persons, Luke 16, 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money. That probably makes you think of the passage that says that the root of all evil is what? It's money, right? No, it's not. It's the love of money. It's the love of money. Money is not evil. It's amoral. Money is necessary. But the love of it, which was the case in the heart of the Pharisees, is the root of all evil. All of it. You remember in our series from 2 Peter that there were two basic characteristics of the false teacher. One was a hunger for sexual deviancy and the other was a hunger or a love for money. That's Paula White. That's Joel Osteen. That's Benny Hinn. If you're not aware of the wealth, the earthly treasures that these people have stored up, which, by the way runs hand-in-hand with the fact that they're not storing up treasure in heaven. Now, how do I know that? Because they're not committed to the gospel. They're not committed to the eternal gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone in the work of Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection. You will not hear that terminology from Joel Osteen. But what you will hear is give, 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 and the result will be that you will get, 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 just like me, right? (laughs) Oh, no, you've been watching Joel Osteen. Everybody's watched him from time to time. He's a classic example of storing up your treasure on earth and doing nothing, nothing, to store it up in heaven. Back to Luke 16. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. You find yourself ridiculing doctrine? This is what they did. I mean, they were... Devoted to doctrine, and yet they hear the king of doctrine, the author of all sound doctrine, and they ridicule him. He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. Right? You defend yourself. Not committed to the gospel. Someone were to challenge you, what would you do? You would defend yourself. You would talk about your conduct. You would talk about your tithing. You would talk about your praying in public. You know, I'm talking about the Pharisees right now. That's what they would do. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You see, this is the religious actor this is the one who has lots of conduct within the church. And in a church like ours and, and other churches, in a faithful church, the religious actor will ultimately eventually stick out like a sore thumb. He might fit in well at first because he's committed to you know, doing lots of stuff. Frantically at times. You know, let's go do that, let's go do this. But ultimately, his life will be seen to be distilled down to nothing more than frantic activity and this was the case with the pharisees their love of money ultimately revealed their love of money and their lack of anything which was prized by the lord their devotion was to that which was an abomination in the sight of god acts 2 44 gives us a really good historical and narrative perspective on what this looks like these are the first Christians gathering in a large volume, Acts 2, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. This is not a case for socialism. This was a free will desire to minister to others by sharing what you had. It wasn't governmentally required of them. Socialism is communism. They're synonymous. It's a misunderstanding of government. It is a requirement that you, in your hard-working efforts, give to those who refuse to work. And it defies all biblical concepts of what it means to be faithful. It flies in the face of it in every sense of what it is. That's not what this is. This was a willingness A spirit-filled willingness to give to others that which you could give. And in some cases, uh, clearly in this case, to liquidate all their possessions for the sake of the needs of others. It says they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Not for those who choose not to work but to those who actually had a need. Mark 12, 41 gives us another perspective on someone's heart. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. More in what? More in proportion. More in generosity. She was willing to store up her treasure in heaven rather than to store it up on earth. She gave it all. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. She trusted the Lord with it. When I first moved to Houston, Texas back in 1987... There was uh, one family that I knew there when I moved there. I didn't know anybody else. I knew this one family. It was a gal, and she had two kids. Her husband had left her. And um, I tried to spend some time ministering to the boys and uh, helping them around the house. She told me one time that she got $600 a month for alimony, $600, and um, that she had committed herself to giving 100 of that every month to her church, to the Lord. That's a pretty substantial percentage But it was her belief that it was all God's money anyway. And the point that she was trying to make with me was that God was providing everything that she and her kids needed. She had a budget. She knew exactly how much haircuts were going to cost, food, electric bill, all that stuff. They did without. They did without. But she was willing to give in such a way that showed that her treasure was in heaven, not on this earth. Yesterday morning after our first session in the treasure principle, I spoke to a lady in our church, a dear soul, who said to me, I'm able to give $10 a month. That's all I can give. And I'm going to start giving 15 That's the spirit. That's the idea. And when your perspective is that It's an eternal investment. Your heart changes on these things. You're willing to recalibrate your budget when you understand that your giving is actually to the Lord. In the book of Numbers, the people gave to the Levites, but it says they gave to the Lord. They were giving to the Lord. How do you give to the Lord? You know, Do you go to his apartment and give him 20 bucks? No, because he's not here. To give to the Lord means to give to the Lord's body. And to do that in a way that shows that you're storing up treasure in heaven, you can't do that with every local church. How do you determine whether or not it's right to give to your local church? It's based on the integrity of the leadership. If there is a legitimate accountability amongst the leadership... That there is truly a commitment to being above reproach, and that that's trickling down into the body. And you look around the room and you see these people growing spiritually, and you know that that is the result of sound teaching and sound counseling and sound ministry, otherwise, and fellowship, and even at times a rebuke. You know that those things are done imperfectly, but they're done faithfully. You can say, I'm not concerned. I can sleep at night knowing that my investment truly is eternal. That's the measuring rod. That's how it works. I invite you to get to know your family group shepherd so that you can assess his life because he wants you to so that you can know that your investment in heaven is actually taking place with every dime that you give to the Lord. The Lord calls us to give cheerfully. How can you give cheerfully if you're not involved in the body of Christ in such a way that you can assess the lives of the body of Christ? You can't. You know, to just come every now and then and kind of drop something in the plate and, you know, expect that that's going to have some kind of impact, you can't know by listening to my preaching. I could just be a really good actor, for all you know, if you're not involved in anybody's life here. And that, by the way, is quite common. If you've got access to TBN, watch 10 minutes of it, and you'll see that. Well, point number two, your focus reveals your life your focus, where your eyes go. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? This is the idea that the eye is the window into the life. That where your eyes go, where they are fixated, where you find yourself focusing... That's where your life will follow. You're drawn in through the eyes, and eventually you take your body wherever your eyes are imprisoned. Your body, in this passage, represents your conduct, where you go and what you do. You take your body everywhere you go, and your eye leads it around. Where you set your eye, your body will eventually follow, sometimes immediately, almost simultaneously and sometimes with the fishtail effect, meaning that in some cases when your eye goes in one direction your body will follow with some delay but with a great deal more velocity. When your car fishtails the rear of the car is led around by the front of the car but while the rear of the car gets there after the front of it, it arrives with much greater force and much less control. If you've ever been water skiing you know what I mean. Standard speed for a boat pulling an amateur water skier is 42 miles per hour. With a 75-foot tow rope at that speed, when the boat driver takes a hard left and the skier allows himself to be swung out wide to the right, he may reach speeds that double that of the boat, and maintaining control is, of course, much more difficult. That's what it's like when your body follows your eye. Your eye engages, but your body is imprisoned. That's how addiction takes place. We call it the whip effect in water skiing. The eye, with deliberate, calculated control and tightened focus, no longer looking straight ahead, picks up speed, veers to the right, veers to the left, and the body follows with a great deal of velocity and very little self-control, if any. A new vehicle catches your eye. A new television, new shoes, a new purse. A house, a gun, the newest sandwich at your favorite fast food place, which costs $6 instead of $2. But that picture, oh my word, how do you resist that picture? All that bacon. (laughs) See, your eye gets snared by the flesh-driven marketing scheme, and soon your body shows with your credit card and you've got nothing left to give the Lord because you're paying back mounds of compounded debt with compounded interest. The adulterer is the prime example of this. The wandering but careful eye eventually becomes the careless, fixated eye, and the body follows. Same with money. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. You get the picture? Where you allow your eye, where you intend for your eye to be fixated, your body will follow. Why? Because your eye is the lamp of your body. It's the path of vision. It's the lighted path. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So, Keep your eye, your lamp, focused on that which is pure, filled with light. Colossians 3, verse 1. Set your mind on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You know, when I was younger, for me, that focus was sports, specifically football. It was the absolute focus of my eye. While I was doing quite well in the third game of the season, my sophomore year in college, God took it from me, broke my ankle. While running, of all things, I was pursuing a quarterback. My ankle just snapped right in half. I played on it the rest of the game, three quarters, and then I sat out the next two games with a cast and crutches. 17 days later, 17 days later, that's how it works in college sports. They had me back out on the field, and another player with his helmet landed firmly on the break spot on my ankle, and I'm out for the season. I know, I groaned too, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me up to that point in my life because God took the idol. God took the treasure of my life and forced me to think about what was really important. I was miserable, but I learned that football is not much of a God. It's weak, so it's not much of a temptation to me even today. I almost never watch football. When I do, I'm interested in the strategy of the game, but I couldn't care less about who's playing or coaching. I couldn't tell you the name of one running back or one receiver or one defensive player, and the only reason I can tell you the names of some quarterbacks is because they're in the news for being in jail or coming out of retirement for the third time but I'm not interested in the players. I I love the nuts and bolts of the game as a coach. I love the multiple ways in which football can serve to help young men understand how to be a reliable member of the body of Christ, where every player on every play has a crucial role, very much like the body of Christ, illustratively. But it will never be the singular gaze of my eye, and it will never distract me. Rather, I want to focus on things above, things that bring peace. Philippians 4, 8, and 9 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This, by the way, is a massive portion of the pathway to discernment. Last week, from Hebrews 5, we talked about practicing discernment. There's so much bad theology on the Internet, and it's so enticing because they always start with the stuff that really works, and it sounds good, and in some cases, it's actually reflective of things in the Bible, and they suck you into the false theology via that avenue. This is a great way to practice discernment, to meditate on things that are commendable, So you might say, well, yeah, but how do I overcome addictions? How do I overcome my addiction to money, pornography, getting my way? Parameters. You need parameters. The first of those parameters is Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 9.15 says, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. You need Christ. You need the real Christ of the Bible. You need to meditate on him. You need to look at his word and see who he is. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. I mentioned to you last week a married couple, a young married couple that uh, started this thing called Fierce Marriage. This is a distraction from the true God of the Bible. Paul says, we're destroying arguments in every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. Do you know the context of 2 Corinthians 10? It's spiritual warfare, the same issue that's going on in Ephesians 6. Spiritual warfare is what Satan engages in by enticing you with that which looks like the real thing. And so often, 85% of it is the real thing. And 15 or even just 5% of it is absolutely poisonous. Fierce marriage is devoid of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's becoming increasingly popular. I'm seeing it all over in social media. And what do we do? We take every thought captive to obey Christ. Every thought. Are you willing to seek counsel? with regard to how to do that, the things to to lop off out of your life and the things to focus on more in your life. 1 Corinthians 2, 2 says, I desire to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. These were Paul's words to the Corinthians. The parameters that you need in your life are Christ, the true Christ of the Bible, that he would truly be the apple of your eye that he would be the meditation of your heart, that he would be the focus of your vision. That won't happen if you're hiding what I called spiritual candy bars last week. You've got pockets of ungodly, abominable entities in your life that you won't even tell your spouse about and when he or she finds out, you do everything you possibly can to get him or her to help you hide it. It doesn't work that way. The other parameter you need is the body of Christ. Because in the body of Christ, you learn to be devoted to his word. You learn to be devoted to sound preaching and sound teaching and counseling and meditation on his word and studying his word and singing his word. And within those parameters, within the body of Christ, becomes the gentle efforts of those who love you and are willing to address your sin. Paul says in Galatians 6 verse 1, Brothers, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You need that. You need the spirit of gentleness with which brothers and sisters in Christ will attempt to restore you when your sin is exposed rather than cultivating your ability to hide it. Because that's false Christianity. And you've seen it before. He says... Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. That's not good that you would boast in yourself and not in your neighbor if you're trying to do this all on your own without the reflection and the assessment of the body of Christ. You see, you need the parameter of the body of Christ if you're addicted to something, no matter what it is. Distillation of these parameters is Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision of the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. You see, that's the other side of the parameters. You have these parameters in Christ and his word and the body. The other parameter is really an absence of roadblocks. You're assessing your life and you're asking the question, what are the provisions for the flesh? When I go home at night, is there a provision that I can eliminate? How about this? Is there something that I'm storing up as treasure on earth that has become an idol and it's time for me to move on from it so that I would not only have money to store up treasure in heaven, but that I would eliminate the idolatry that's preventing my spiritual growth? Keep your eye filled with things earthly and your body will have no time for things eternal because it will be overtaken with earthly things. Keep your eyes on things eternal, and your body will follow into things eternal with even greater velocity. The whip effect. Well, point number three, your service reveals your master. We've said your possessions reveal your heart. Your focus reveals your life. And now we're saying your service reveals your master. Jesus says no one can serve two masters. If you've ever tried to do that, if you've ever worked in a place where nobody really knew who the boss was and you're trying to please everybody, that's kind of what that feels like. He says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Those are the two masters that he's referring to in leading up to this by explaining the fact that there's no way to be fully wholeheartedly devoted to two masters. The end result will be that you'll be confused and you'll gain greater favor toward one than the other and the result will be that as you compare the two, you will despise the one that you don't love. Same is true with God. And money. You can't serve both as masters. This is extremely revelatory of the condition of the human heart, and it's manifest in how and where and what you serve. Let me be clear about that. How and where and what you serve. I was a school principal, I think most of you know that, many years ago. And when I first got to this school, they were doing a lot of things really, really well. But one of the things that they were doing very poorly is they were establishing no accountability for the school faculty to be involved in the local church. And as I began to interview, I had 90 employees. I interviewed every single one of them for an hour at a time with the current principal that was at the school as well. We began to work together through these interviews. And one of the things that became painfully obvious to me was that most of these people thought that this was their ministry, teaching in the Christian school. It's not the church. I would ask, where are you serving the Lord in the local body? My second grade class. I love second graders. Oh, so how does that look? What does that look like? Oh, I just told you I love my second graders. Well, we reversed that in about a year. Those who refused to acknowledge that this was not the ecclesiological ministry to which the Lord called them, determined that this wasn't where they would serve any longer. And the Lord blessed us with finding faculty that actually loved the body of Christ. Your service reveals your master. In Matthew 18, 21, it says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You see, this is a story of a man who has one master and another man who has another master. The one represents the one who serves the Lord, and the other represents the one who, despite all grace granted from his master, chooses to actually despise that master and choose money as his master. I encourage you to keep a record of how you serve. Really a time inventory. You know, the call is not to abandon all else and serve the body of Christ, but the call is for your service in the body of Christ to be the primary devotion of your life. And the person who looks at his life and says, you know what, I'm really not doing any of that at all. This is a massive wake-up call. And the call is not for you to compare yourself with someone else. There's nothing wrong with doing that if so long as you're doing that in an effort to assess your own life and how you might serve more faithfully. But there's no cookie-cutter template that says everybody serves exactly this way. The issue is faithfulness. Are you utilizing your giftedness in the body of Christ maximally, in such a way that your secondary ministry in the world, whether at work or in your home or wherever, is a byproduct? of that. Your service to the body, which is to be your primary service according to the book of Galatians, that you would first serve the household of God. That then would spill over into your ministry elsewhere. What's the benefit of this? The benefit of storing up your treasure in heaven as opposed to storing it up on earth? Well, This passage in verse 25 goes on to say, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. You catch the therefore? That's the connector. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. You will be anxious about your life if you're storing up your treasures on earth. If you're storing them up in heaven, you can say, I'm freed in a sense of the responsibility the Lord's caring for it in heaven. In his book, The Treasure Principle, Randy Alcorn has said, your faith and your finances are inseparable. Your faith and your finances are inseparable. We often think of them as being separate, but they're not. Your finances, remember, are not yours. They're the Lord's. I've heard John MacArthur say that on Sunday mornings, the greatest act of worship is your giving. It's most expressive of where your heart is. Jesus says you cannot serve God and money. Back to the continuation of the passage where Jesus has said here, do not be anxious about your life. He says what you will eat or what you drink, nor about your body, what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. You you tend to be obsessed with those things from time to time, especially when it's difficult to pay the bills. He says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not of more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious about itself. That's to say, I mean, is tomorrow really anxious about itself? That's a figure of speech. The point is there's no need for anybody to be anxious about tomorrow you're storing up treasure in heaven. He says sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Tomorrow will have trouble. Don't create trouble for tomorrow, today. Rest in storing up your treasure in heaven. That couple I mentioned to you who came into my office where the man determined that he was more devoted to the Raiders than most anything else came back about four years later. taught a Bible study, and he approached me afterward. I was surprised to see him, but I did recognize him. He said, I I really wanted to come back and talk to you. He said, do you remember that day you counseled us? And I said, yeah, I remember. And he said, yeah, I was really angry with you. I said, yeah, I know. He said, I really wanted to find you and tell you that I joined the military. I've completed my term. And with the GI Bill, I've just started Bible college and I'm investing in heaven. I'm committing my life to serving in a way that matters eternally. (laughs) Man, if I were in a place of discouragement at that point, that would have lifted me out like a rocket. And you want to hear those things from folks. You tell them the right thing. You trust the Lord to do the work in his timing. Well, let me talk to you very briefly about three things. I want to talk to you about what we're doing with our giving as a church. I want to talk to you about what we are giving as a church. And I want to talk to you about what we could be doing. In a few weeks, we're going to give this to you in graphic form up on the the big screen so that you can see it. We're going to show you what our hopes are as a church to be able to to fulfill the Great Commission as we are commanded. But I want you to hear from me as your pastor what this looks like right now. And as I said, we'll put it in more written form in a few weeks. Number one, what we're doing with our giving. We currently have three church staff for managing the daily operations need of our church in our budget. There's me. I serve pastorally. Amy, who manages the office and and does about 10 billion things throughout the week. And then we have slotted another spot in the event that that comes about. We're also spending money substantially on facilities that are suitable for our ministry, meaning we're just about to burst at the seams. This room is getting too small. Those rooms on the other side of the wall are too small. Wednesday night, I had a group of men of about 23 guys in the conference room. That room is way too small. So some of you went with us when we toured the suites in back of us, suites 13 to 14, a few weeks ago. So we're giving consideration to that. We're also considering the possibility of finding someplace somewhere else. There's much more that we're doing here and there, but those are really the big items, And we believe that that is faithful gospel ministry storing up treasure in heaven. In addition to that, of course, as you know, there have been a number of times where we've asked you to give to worldwide missions. When the TMAI missionaries have been here, you've given rather generously. And we're going to ask you to continue to do that. I've mentioned that two of those men will be here, one in February, one in March. So you'll have more opportunity to do that. So that's what we're doing with our giving. Just a little bit about what we're actually giving. These are some interesting stats. Again, we'll we'll paint a clearer picture for you in a few weeks. But this is really, really huge, this first stat. Five givers, five giving entities, meaning either single people or a family, a married couple, married couple and their kids, five givers, five giving units, gave 35% of our giving in 2016. 35%. 35%. Now, if we were to lose one or especially two of those families, we'd have to close the doors in about three months. If all that giving went away, that's a huge threat for potential disaster. Another stat for you, 75% of all of our people, all of our giving units, which is about 100, last we counted it was 104, 75% gave less than $60 a week last year. It's less than $60 a week, 75% of our people. last year gave less than $1,000 for the whole year. 12 either members or regular attenders gave nothing for the whole year. 12 family units, giving units, gave nothing. Now, we received about $6,500 in undisclosed cash last year, and that could have been some of those folks that we have no record for giving. And and most of you know I don't see any of those records. I don't see names. I don't know who gives what. I don't want to know. But I can stand before you here and, and tell you these are the facts. There's nothing wrong with dealing with the facts. Now, usually I give you the problem, and then I give you the solution when I teach. But in this case, I felt it was important to give you the theology from Matthew 6, from Jesus himself, and to say, this is, this is where we are. And, and we'll give you more stats, and we want that to be helpful. We want it to be encouraging. My father-in-law is responsible for this same effort at his church in Valencia, they did a similar study, and their stats were very similar to ours, actually, percentage-wise. And he said what I was thinking. You see this, and you get excited because of what the Lord could do if our people really understood biblical giving. When I began to understand biblical giving, it absolutely transformed my life. I want to give more. Kimberly and I try hard to give more all the time. So we've increased that as we've gone, and it's a treasure for us to do that. If we had more money, let's just say it the way it is. If we had the funds, we could have a full-time pastor on staff. He'd need an office. We'd need more space. If we had more money, we'd have additional facilities to accommodate our growing needs. Think of it. We might even be able to purchase our own building one day and be debt-free. Can you imagine if we put aside $100,000 a year, which is not unreasonable, In five years, we'd have $500,000 with all the interest. And at the very least, be able to go somewhere and say, here's a chunk of change, (laughs) which means mostly interest-free. Could mean completely interest-free. See, I don't want to build a big shrine or an entertainment center. I I don't want to build a big circus hall. We don't need or want a state-of-the-art facility that will draw people in with its technology, artsy design, and large-screen video projects not who we are we just need more room <laughs> and because we've been faithful to care for our small facilities with excellence we will trust the lord to continue to provide what we need with his money which we believe he will provide to cover the expense if we had more money we could increase our giving to the masters academy international to train more men to teach theology sound biblical theology to win people to Christ. We could give more money to the Pregnancy and Family Resource Center in San Bernardino, which we believe is a very, very valuable ministry. We could give more money to the poor. We could send more men to the Master's Seminary. We could plant a church in an area that needs a church. And we're not far from lots of areas that need churches. A couple years ago, after selling a house young person in our church gave a substantial percentage of that income from the sale to the Lord. I mean, a very, very large amount of money. That money could have been spent on so many other things, but there was this awareness that this is what it means to store up treasure in heaven Yesterday, in our class on the treasure principle, when I asked for examples of people storing up treasure in heaven, Heather French, through tears, explained that our church, you, had invested in a counselor attending Camp Regen last July. And during a conversation with her son Jacob, God used that counselor to store up Jacob's heart eternally in heaven and if you know Jacob and if you knew Jacob you know Jacob is a new Jacob see that's investment with a thousand percent return it's more than a thousand percent It's, it's infinite return, it's immeasurable it's priceless, you can't measure it so where's your heart, how's your life who's your master your possessions reveal your heart your focus reveals your life And your service reveals your master. You might be thinking, okay, I'm ready. How much do I give? We'll talk about that next time. Father, you are great. You're God of mercy and grace. We think of the man who considered the buried treasure worthy to cover over And to buy that land, that he would give up all that he had, which he could not keep, to gain what he could not lose, Lord, help us to be driven by grace and not by guilt. Father, I I plead with you to extract any hint of guilt in everyone's heart here that might Inadvertently, have been the result of anything that I have said that we would never ever be driven by guilt but that it would be your grace your grace in providing the inexpressible gift of Jesus Christ to us whose death provided forgiveness for our sins and strength, really victory over sin and death that we would be thankful, so thankful that our gratitude would show itself in a willingness to store up treasure in heaven, not on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves come in and steal. Lord, we ask you these things with hearts that desire to honor you, and we pray that even now you'd help us to do that. Amen.